In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow, it's high up here. (laughs) Good morning. It's summertime, uh, a time to relax, and I'd say probably a pretty good time to experiment a little bit. So I want to do a little experimentation with you this morning. Instead of focusing on the gospel reading this morning, which is what we typically do, and I will get to that, I want to first talk about the Old Testament story this morning, that story of Jacob and Esau and the loss of a birthright over a lousy bowl of stew. Now, if ever there was a story that presents the male side of the human race in the worst light possible. This is it. If the AJC had been around when this was going on, I can, I can imagine what the, the headline would read. Youngest brother outfoxes older brother and secures birthright. Or something a little harsher like, oldest son trades leadership of his family and writes to a double share of inheritance for a lousy bowl of stew. When I was going over this passage prior to preparing this talk to you today, it reminded me of a story about 20 years ago that happened actually in in my family between my two sons, Teddy and Ben. Teddy was about six years old, and Ben was four, and it was Christmas time and they chose to swap bedrooms. Ben had received $30 from his grandmother for Christmas, and Teddy had his eye on the 30 bucks. (laughs) So Teddy went to Ben and said, let's swap and exchange the 30 bucks, and you can have my, my bedroom. I can imagine what went through Ben's mind at the time, his four-year-old mind. He must have thought, gee, Teddy has a huge bedroom full of toys and books and a huge window that overlooks all the trees in the backyard. And I have this tiny little bedroom with this tiny little bed and this tiny window that overlooks a forlorn fruit tree in the backyard. This is a no-brainer, he must have thought to himself. And the deal went down. And then Ruth found out about it. (laughs) Ruth immediately got in there and accused Teddy of taking advantage of the naivete of a four-year-old and demanded that he give the $30 back. And Teddy begrudgingly complied. But here's the crux of the story. She did not require them to reverse the room arrangement. I still laugh to this day over this. If the AJC had been around, I would imagine that, and it had reported on this particular story, I imagine that the the headline would have said, youngest son outfoxes older brother and secures huge bedroom for a lifetime. And when they come home now and visit us, one little thing I just absolutely love to do, I love to sneak up to the second floor while Teddy is still asleep in his 
bedroom and crack the door open, and there I see his five-foot-ten-inch frame hanging off this tiny little bed in this tiny little room with this tiny little window that overlooks this huge fruit tree in the backyard. Teddy's bedroom is not in the Garden of Eden, but this whole scene screams of creation to me. The story of Jacob and Esau is in so many ways a creation story, a story of human formation in the way that people relate to God, the creator. Now, just before this story, the great patriarch, Abraham, he had died. So everyone must have been very concerned at the time with a fundamental sort of question. How would creation work itself out? after paradise in the Garden of Eden had been lost, after, after Adam and Eve had defied God by eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. Now, God had already created the world and declared it good, but with creation, God also gave mankind the will to think and to see and to discern and choose freely. Free will allowed people the right to make a choice to either follow God and be in relationship with him or not to follow God and be alienated from their creator. So in the Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau, the burning question seems to be, how will it all turn out? Or more precisely, after that moment of creation, What's the future of Israel, or for that matter, the future of the whole human race, when people have been granted the power of free choice? Now, with Abraham, things start off very well. Abraham models obedience to God. In fact, over his time on earth, Abraham seemed to suppress choice in exchange for obedience to God. And Isaac appeared to follow nicely in Abraham's footsteps. But Jacob, something seems to be off-centered with Jacob, not quite right. Now, on the one hand, he appears to be an, somewhat of an exemplary biblical figure. He obeys God's commands. God protects him no matter what he does. And he's buried with Abraham and Isaac in the land of milk and honey, the land of his chosen people. But Jacob, Jacob is twisted. He's full of trickery and deceit. He's prone to bad choices. It seems that his very nature, Jacob's very nature, was formed right there at his birth. When he was born, he arrived right after his twin brother Esau, grasping at his heel. In fact, the Hebrew word for heel infers someone who literally takes by the heel. Jacob is a, is a heel grabber. Makes you blanch a bit, doesn't it? It is indeed quite frightening to think of Jacob as a kind of father figure for the whole human race. The future of mankind seems to be all tied up in the hands of someone who is willing to craft a cheap deal a bowl of stew for a birthright? Or is that really the case? 
The reading this morning only tells us of a birth story and the snatching away of a birthright, but it doesn't tell the whole story of Jacob. After he secures this birthright, what does Jacob do? He goes into the wilderness, and he comes to a place called Bethel, and there he has a dream. He dreams that angels are ascending and descending from heaven. And upon awakening, what does he say? He says that wonderful line, Surely the Lord was in this place, but I did not know it. Jacob senses God at work in his life. And then he moves on and he goes to the river Jabbok. And there he has a direct encounter with God. At the river Jabbok, Jacob wrestles with God and and survives to tell the tale. So you see, over a lifetime, Jacob seems to be recreated time and time again. From heel grabber to fugitive to dreamer of angels to wrestling partner with God himself. And in the process, he's utterly transformed into what God intended for him all along. The creation of Jacob, his formation as a child of God, takes a lifetime and is not restricted to the single moment when he was formed out of the dust of the earth when he literally came into the world grasping at the heel of his brother Esau. The creation of Jacob is not marked solely by his beginning, but by his rebirth out of the work of God in his life, a moment marked at the conclusion of his wrestling match with the divine when God changes his name from Jacob to Israel which means God strives. It is the work of God over a lifetime that makes us who we are. But for the grace of God go we. But for the grace of God are we created, are we made. And that is the point, I think. We all have this God-given freedom to accept God or to reject him to obey like Abraham or disobey like Adam. This free will in us, this ability to choose, is what we think enables us to accept God or reject him altogether when we find him to be impenetrable, angry, unhelpful, hard to take, or dare I say, absent. In our free thinking, we mistakenly believe that God would have it no other way, as if our choice is the only step necessary for our personal transformation. But who we become, who we are ultimately created to be, is every bit as much a matter of God's work in our lives as it is a matter of our choice. Now, don't get me wrong, choices matter. But in and of themselves, they cannot transform a life. Only God can transform a life. Only God can create in this regard. 
Our creation is God's loving act in our beginning for sure, but also over the total expanse of our lives. Whether we're in elementary school at Jackson Elementary or we're retired at Canterbury Court. And here, I think, is where the gospel reading this morning from Matthew is so helpful. Because in the gospel reading, Jesus explains who this God really is. Jesus' God in Matthew is a God that throws seed indiscriminately in every conceivable direction and on all types of surfaces. On a path where birds swoop down and consume, have you ever thought that God would never try to penetrate your heart, particularly after you've consciously chosen to reject him? Think again. On rocky ground where roots fail to develop, have you ever wondered if you were worthy of God's grace, if you had what it took to be loved unconditionally? Think again. Among thorns, where all growth is quickly choked off, have you ever been so filled with bitterness that not even God could make an attempt to draw you closer to him? Think again. And eventually Jesus describes the sower in his indiscriminate action, flinging seed on good soil, that surface, that place that exists alongside the path and the thorns, right next to the rocky road. Have you ever wondered in those dark moments when God seemed to be completely absent from your life, if your faith could be rekindled? Think again. Jesus describes the actual moment when the sower's seed falls on good soil as the precise moment when, quote, we hear the word and we understand it. It's like that midlife moment of Jacob when he wakes up and realizes, surely the Lord was in this place, but I did not know it. It is that moment of epiphany, that moment when God seems to come out of the woodwork of our lives, when we see that God is working his purpose out, no matter what choices we've made, that God is actively at work in our lives despite what we've chosen for ourselves. The God that Jesus describes is a sower who refuses to take no for an answer. The God that Jesus describes is a sower creator who can only answer yes to his creation. Which takes me to the postscript in the Jacob and Esau story. After the river Jabbok and after Jacob's conversion to Israel, he comes and meets his brother on the plain. And you would think, if you'd had your birthright stolen, that we would have a brawl here. But what happens? Esau, the one who had been cheated, 
comes out and embraces his brother, falls on his neck, and kisses him. And in response, Jacob cries out openly and says, Truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. In the midst of personal transformation, Jacob sees Esau, and in the process, he also sees God face to face. In so many ways, both moments are part of the same thing, really. God is always present in creation. This is the culmination of a life fully lived in all its ups and downs and in response to God. Over a lifetime where the divine act of creation is ongoing, brothers are reconciled and conflict is avoided. At the end of the story, or should I say at the very beginning of Jacob's new life as Israel, as a child of God, I suspect that if Jacob had listened carefully, he just might have heard God declare it all good. Sometimes the beginning of a life falls somewhere near the end of a lifetime of personal transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Either way, in creation, it's all good. Thanks be to God.